From competition over scarce resources and health crises to civil unrest and environmental emergencies, the need for defence to use its skills to help deliver sustainability has never been so pressing. So how can the Ministry of Defence take a long-term strategic approach to sustainability? And what role will transformation play in enabling the military to deliver on its net zero targets? I'm Megan Wright, Senior Editor at Longitude, a Financial Times company, and joining me to answer these questions are Lord Deben, Chairman of the UK's Committee on Climate Change and former Secretary of State for the Environment, Major General David Southall, the Army's Director of Basing and Infrastructure, and Howard Lungley, Principal Consultant and Sustainability Lead at Fraser Nash. Lord Deben, I'd like to come to you first, if I may. You have such a wealth of knowledge and experience when it comes to sustainability, the environment and the climate crisis that we're currently facing. Could you paint us a picture of the scale of the challenge at hand and the urgency with which defence should act? Well, the truth is that we are faced for the first time in human history with an existential challenge. In other words, a challenge which really could mean the end of us and of most of what we understand on the world. And and we've never known about that before. I mean, even the biblical flood came unannounced, so to speak. So we have, first of all, got a huge challenge to our intellectual abilities as human beings, because we know, we know also that we are responsible and we have to do something about it. And the truth is we don't have much time because we have done so much damage to the planet in so many different ways. We have lost all control. And therefore, if we don't act immediately, then the changes will be so great that we don't know how devastating they will be. Will, for example, the way in which the oceans work entirely reverse? Will we find that uh, the very things upon which we depend for life, will they just disappear? So urgency, absolute. Existential danger, absolute. And yet we have an answer. We know how to do it. And indeed, the uh, Climate Change Committee here in the United Kingdom has laid down a step-by-step route to achieve the net zero the whole world has to achieve by 2050 if we are to keep global warming below two degrees and down as close to 1.5 as we can, which is the only safe way to ensure that the devastating changes which could happen won't happen. So we have to get on with it. It's a good point, actually, and it echoes the sentiment in the recently released climate change and sustainability strategic approach, in which Lieutenant General Richard Nugy notes that defence must quote, afford to keep up with the pace of change. General David, I'd love to invite you in at this point, actually, because you are known as the Army's sustainability champion, a role that I'm sure brings both challenge and opportunity to affect change. Can you tell us how important is sustainability to the Ministry of Defence? And what are some of the biggest barriers that you are currently up against? I'd echo the observations offered by Lord Deben. I think Critically, the Army and Defence absolutely recognises that 
tackling climate change isn't discretionary for any of us. The political consequences, the economic consequences, as well as the environmental consequences of not tackling this challenge are simply far too grave, far too profound. So we recognise this, which has been framed by the UN as a existential threat to humanity. Rusi has highlighted that it's not just an environmental issue, uh, nor is it simply an energy problem, but it's also a security threat. And I think critically, the recent report from General Richard highlights that as a department, the MOD is responsible for for approximately 50% of central government emissions. So I think the the intellectual underpinning, the imperative that this presents is not something that defence can choose to ignore or wishes to choose to ignore. Howard, to bring you in at this point, I'm curious to know, based on your insights and the work that Fraser Nash is doing in this space, how can defence act in a way that balances the urgency of the climate crisis, as we've just heard, with the importance of building evidence that underpins a credible long-term strategy? It strikes me that this is quite a complex challenge at hand. I have to say, I think that actually the world is moving so fast and it's going to get faster that organisations and you know, the MOD included can't afford to stay still regardless of what particular type of change we're talking about. But decarbonisation is going to be the biggest driver of technology over the next few decades that we've ever seen. And for that reason, the the MOD really needs to embrace decarbonisation because it is a is going to be an enabler of improved capability, improved competitiveness, and in fact, dare I say it, um, you know, ability to stay relevant. So what we have had in the past and we still suffer from in all industries really is this false dichotomy between what's seen as sustainable and what's seen as operationally advantageous. And increasingly now, low carbon solutions are the better from an operational perspective because actually they're new. And if we can have a really clear set of policies that help guide all of our activities across the whole economy now towards decarbonisation, that will produce the next generation of technology and the generation after that, that is going to far outperform the previous. And the challenge for organisations is to be agile enough to take advantage of it as fast as it's coming along. Let me ask you then, General David, when it comes to enacting this kind of change, how can the MOD best exert its influence to achieve net zero by 2050 while it continues to execute on its operational strategy? It's this false dichotomy that Howard highlights. So we see three mutually supporting imperatives to deliver against this challenge. The first one, the simple one, the policy imperative, net zero by 2050. So there's some clear policy imperatives. There's there's the obvious moral imperative to do the right thing for the society we serve. But there is also a business and an operational imperative. So the army estate, as an example, 20,000 buildings, 2% of the UK landmass, much of it more than 20, 30 years old, It's an inefficient footprint. 
So from a pure business perspective, it is advantageous to pursue uh, sustainability initiatives to make the estate not only sustainable and compliant from a climate change perspective, but also from a pure business imperative. When you couple that with the operational imperative for how defence should seek to operate in the 21st century, more agile, more lethal, reduced logistic burdens, improved agility, lower logistic drag, more self-sufficiency, more resilience on deployed operations, all of those are unlocked and enabled by much of the technology that underpins the sustainability challenge. So this is something critically where I think the urgency to act and the importance of a credible long-term strategy are mutually supportive as opposed to in conflict. Can I just say that the crucial thing there is that that mirrors what has happened in the wider government field, because the department which is pressing for the changes that are necessary is the Treasury. It's a most interesting change. For the whole of uh, my life, we've always had to argue with the Treasury uh, because they never wanted to do the things that we wanted to do as ministers, never wanted to do the things that we thought were necessary because they were keeping the books. Now they are the drivers because what they are seeing is that all those things which are true of the military are true of the wider world, that if you're going to operate in a, an increasingly demanding world, you've actually got to do so in the most sustainable manner because the rest of the world is going to demand it. And for the military, of course, there's a third fact which we haven't covered, but we need to. And that is that even during the dark days of President Trump, the American Pentagon recognized that climate change was creating some of their biggest international challenges. Because while climate change is operating, of course, it is driving all kinds of uncertainties and worse in the world. Arguments about water because you're short of it arguments about land because your land is now desert, arguments about land because the sea is uh, engulfing the lands you have, all those things which cause international tension and bring the military in are things which come from climate change or are made worse by climate change. Lord Deben, to what extent does the Ministry of Defence then have the ability to exert governmental power to affect change? And what are your thoughts on how the MOD might effectively do this without imposing hefty regulations that often stifle innovation? The military has got to get much better at finding ways in which private investment can help them achieve their end. Now, I think there are regulatory changes which we need to have, which will give investors confidence, regulatory changes about the uh, judgments of, uh, for example, of what equipment is bought, regulatory changes about what we should do with our land use. The army has got a wonderful opportunity, for example, of using a good deal of its land holding to provide carbon sequestration. 
Now, carbon sequestration from the from the Earth um, is going to be absolutely necessary for getting to net zero. That's the net bit, the bit that you net off um, because you can't get rid of every emission. And the army could do things which would enable the army to have an income from land which at the moment doesn't provide an income. So if you ask me what the army needs and the Navy and the Air Force, they need, first of all, real imagination, a real ability to think through these things in a different way so that they can get what is a problem round into what will be an opportunity. And equally, the, the same argument applies to suppliers. And the and the MOD, the Army, have a huge supply chain. Um, one example of uh, what might, you might call loosely regulation that the, that the MOD can apply is, is is procurement policy. And I think you know if you're able to say we we won't work with you as a supplier unless you have a credible decarbonisation plan of your own, that can actually stimulate innovation because decarbonisation is as good for the customer as it is for the supplier. Hmm. Howard, I'd like to come back to you on the, on the best operational approach here, in particular to understand how you think the MOD can actively drive controlled change, the types of which Lord Deben just outlined, at the same time as creating the right conditions to tackle unforeseen changes such as pandemics and social movements, which, as we know, are at the moment projected to continue to increase. That's an enormous challenge, and that's an organisational change problem. The golden rule there is that there are no shortcuts. They often fail, change programmes, that is, because there's some kind of shortcut approach. There's a jigsaw of pieces that all need to be in place. And if any one of the pieces is missing, then it's likely to fail. And simplistically, you can describe those as one being the will, the will to act. That sort of comprises of both the direction from leadership, but also the buy-in from the whole organization. The tools to be able to do the job properly, systems and processes. So, for example, if you say we're going to reimburse you for traveling, in an electric vehicle, you need to be able to have the systems to enable people to claim back the travel expenses from an electric vehicle. Um, skills and knowledge, that's absolutely crucial. Everybody needs to understand what they need to know in order to affect the change. And role modeling, you know, people need examples. They need to be shown that this is real. Um, so they need to see leaders acting in the way that the leaders are asking them to act. That's a sort of a very brief summary of all the jigsaw pieces that I think are part of that sort of organizational culture change program. And if you can get all those things right, then you can have the situation where you're you're driving formal change, but also being loose enough to enable informal change to thrive. I'm glad you mentioned culture change there. General David, I'd love to invite you back in at this point, actually. We see in General Nuji's report on climate change, he says that we need to change mindsets. I think it's an important point to pick up. Do you believe the MOD has the operational and cultural agility it needs to be able to innovate and pivot in the way that we're talking about here? So two sides of the same coin. The the operational part first. I think if you 
were to reflect on the integrated review and reflect on the bold transformational scale of ambition that's framed within it. This is a defence review, a strategic defence and security review that recognises that the battle space geometry has changed at quite exponential pace. It recognises that success in this arena is going to require something very different tomorrow to what we have done from a rearview mirror perspective, a more digitised force, a lighter, more agile force, a more expeditionary force, a more asymmetric force, and a force that's fit for future conflicts in the 21st century, not the industrial age conflicts of mass and scale of the past. I think culturally, the mindset of our leadership is absolutely committed. I also think the body of the organisation accepts and has an appetite for, and those that we recruit expect us to be in the forefront and not to be a handbrake or an anchor uh, resistant to change. So there is also an expectation of the next generation of leaders coming through, culturally, institutionally, organisationally, demand it, require it, which is even stronger than just expecting it. Lord Deben, I'd actually like to invite you in at this point. I'm wondering if there are lessons then that UK defence can take from other large-scale efforts to work towards a common goal at speed. For instance, the COVID vaccines is probably the most recent example that comes to mind. Or are there lessons perhaps even from the efforts of other sectors to innovate? Oh, I think there are. And if you look at the vaccine example, um, we had an urgency. We had to do things as rapidly as possible, but very sensibly. And unlike lots of other things we managed to do in the last few years, we, we moved at a, a, a pace which turned out to be actually something we could not only um, uh, comprehend and, and deal with, but actually it we could do it faster. And that's what happens if you get into the right kind of step. If you want to see other examples, I think you do have to look at some of the major companies. If you see, uh, go back to one of the first sustainability innovators, Unilever, you see how far Unilever has moved from the very simple bases which they, with which they started to the point today in which they are very significant leaders in the industrial world to get people to recognise the whole range of sustainability uh, and to see that you can make it profitable. You can do it in a way which cuts your costs, which protects your supply chain, which ensures that uh, you aren't caught out by changes in the political and uh, social world. So there's a lot to be learnt from the companies, the major companies that have made the changes. If you look at uh, Coca-Cola, who moved from a position in which they ignored the fear uh, that they would be short of water to a position in which they put every drop back to a position in which when they used to use, the, they were the biggest purchasers of refrigeration in the world, they recognised that using HFCs 
was using something which was a potent global warmer. And they worked, actually with Greenpeace, they worked to create a kind of refrigeration which would enable them to do nothing, which would damage the uh, uh, planet. Those were two huge changes of a major company and rather an unlikely one. And as a result, you can look and the military should look at the ways in which big businesses have made these changes, because in many ways they are faced with the same problems. Howard, I'm interested to get your perspective on this. And I guess picking up on that thread there, what do the failures of other large-scale transformation efforts perhaps tell us about the possible pitfalls and obstacles that might lie ahead for defence? There are too many to list, really. But the one I'd like to pick up on, really, is this is this concept of uh, resistance to change or organisational inertia. I, and I think, you know, ultimately that comes down to a matter of engagement uh, and buy-in to the, to the subject matter. The human brain is absolutely masterful at finding reasons not to act. If you're in a comfortable position, your natural inclination is to stay put. And, you know, obviously, if there's a burning platform, then it's quite different. But, uh, you know, if you're sitting in a, behind a comfortable desk and people are asking you to change, you are naturally resistant to that change. So I'm really sort of hyper alert whenever I see this. And whenever you see a, a, a climate change policy uh, move from its original author to another reviewer, you often see things get watered down or something new introduced, it seems um, uh, confusing. And when you look underneath, it's because oh, they don't want it to, to disrupt the current way things work. So I think we need to be very vigilant you know, in every organization, but but across the economy, really, because, you know, climate action only works if everybody plays their part. General David, I would really love to ask how you think then the MOD can work towards sustainability sustainably to ensure that urgent operations don't detract from the ability to deliver on long-term sustainability strategy. And to the points we've just heard, to ensure that the army can get its people to engage in these sustainability efforts in a meaningful way. So our approach is to, uh, and the strapline I use, is to think big, start small, but scale fast. So thinking big, we have a moral, operational, business and policy imperative to uh, reach net zero. So we are going to meet that and we're going to exceed it wherever we can. Thinking big. Starting small, we've got a broad range, a wide range of pilots and trials, innovatively experimenting, harnessing the benefits of industry, exploiting opportunity for strategic partnerships with other government departments. And there's a myriad of examples of where we're building, using defence innovation funding, net zero buildings for soldiers' accommodation. We've signed an MOU in the last 12 months with the Environment Agency to create salt marsh and mudflat tidal areas uh, on the coast out of using our defence estate. We open our first four solar farms in the next few months this calendar year. The list goes on. We aren't necessarily going to lead the way on investing in non-carbon or carbon neutral fuels for ships, aircraft and tanks. But we'll absolutely be a fast follower in enabling and adopting as soon as the opportunities arise by those 
parts of the business arena who are best placed to invest in the R&D to drive this. The key to unlock this is to exploit the fact and harness the outputs from the wider national effort and ensure that we are playing a key part in that, not drifting into a siloed military special approach. This is a national uh, agenda. It's a global agenda. It's not a limited defence agenda. To what extent do you believe that UK defence could act as a testbed for other industries and other defence organisations undergoing similar change? As you've just outlined, this is much more than just a UK defence issue and challenge that we're facing. I think the testbed theme is a really powerful one. So if we take the defence estate, we have over 20,000 buildings across the United Kingdom. We're 2% of the UK landmass, but we're 10% of the nation's treble SIs, interestingly, the sites of special scientific interest. Uh, So we have a huge opportunity to offer collaborative opportunities that will benefit defence in terms of those collective imperatives of uh, efficiency, operations, the moral imperative and the policy imperative. If we can deliver a more sustainable estate footprint, it will benefit us. It will reduce our running costs as well as contributing to net zero. But it will also act as a really coherent testbed for the wider national effort. And finally then, Howard, what role do you think non-defence perspectives could play in ensuring the MOD can strike the right balance between urgent and important if we bring this full circle and and back to what we were discussing at the start? There was one thing I wanted to say about this concept of fast follower. I understand the concept that uh, this is about technology development and, and the role of the MOD in, in using new technology, but not necessarily spearheading its new, its development in all cases. But the phrase fast follower, I think, carries with it some risk because it it, it does imply this sort of standing at the front of the queue um, position. But of course, it's very difficult to stand at the front of the queue. You, you know, you have to work really hard to be a fast follower. It's not a passive position at all. So experience from another organization a few years ago where we were launching a a, a large uh, electric vehicle strategy. We were aware at the time that it would be a few years, two to three years off before commercially attractive electric vehicles would be available. But the work we had to put in in order to be able to, to adopt them when we thought they would be available was two years worth of effort across a group that probably encompassed 20 people across the organization. So it's not okay to say we will wait for the technology to come and then use it because it'll take you two years to change your internal processes such that you can use it. So you need to be working on on that change now. So you know, being a fast follower is actually peddling quite hard in itself. Meg, if I could briefly add to Howard's point, just to really drive that nail home, I I use the phrase that being a fast follower is not the same as being a passive passenger. It requires proactive engagement. It requires dynamic engagement. It's a really critical 
observation to ensure we don't misinterpret fast follower. It is not being a passive passenger and it requires innovative driven engagement in order to unlock and enable output. I'm glad we all finally came to a consensus. I think that's a really good note to end on. So thank you very much for your time today. This interview is part of Fraser Nash Consultancy's Sustainability Strategies Campaign. It was produced by Longitude, a Financial Times company in partnership with Fraser Nash. You can find more content at www.fnc.co.uk forward slash sustainability. Thanks for listening.